Dr. Ed Phelps here from University of Florida, and very excited to hear what he has to talk to us about today. Um, title of the talk is Pancreas Slices to Study Interactions Between Immune Cells and Islets. Very important uh, topic in type 1 diabetes, of course. I'm just going to give a short bio uh, on Dr. Phelps, uh, just so we can kind of, uh, for those who don't know him, uh, I'm sure many do, but he received his BS in biomedical engineering and a PhD in bioengineering from Georgia Tech. He went on to complete a postdoctoral fellowship in bioengineering life sciences at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. And he joined the faculty at the J. Creighton Pruitt Family Department of Biomedical Engineering at U Florida in 2017. His research is focused on biomaterials engineering as a strategy, um, sorry, just letting some people in here, um, for regenerative therapies with emphasis on the area of type 1 diabetes. Dr. Phelps specializes in biosynthetic cellular microenvironments to drive regenerative responses in vivo. He uses advanced light microscopy methods to investigate islet biology, including the immunopathogenesis of diabetes and the role of neurotransmitters in regulating islet function. Um, he's received the 2018 NPOD Young Investigator Award and the 2021 UF Excellence Award for Assistant Professors. Congratulations, that's amazing. Um, and uh, research in the Phelps Lab is funded uh, generously by JDRF, DRC, Immunocore, and uh, HERN, as well as NIH, NIDDK. Welcome, uh, Ed. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. And I cannot wait to see what you've been getting up to. Um, down in New York, Florida, I'm hoping that uh, your lab was not affected by the current hurricane, Ian. Great. Thanks, Monica. Welcome to all the folks currently on the call. Uh, see Mark there and uh, some other folks I probably recognize and uh, anyone watching the recording later. So um, <laughs> thanks, Monica, for the really nice introduction. Um, I was actually just down in St. Pete a couple of weeks ago visiting the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, which is a pretty interesting institute. And I hope they're all okay down there too. Um, so what I'm going to talk about today is our uh, slice work, which you know is it's actually a super collaborative effort. It doesn't really represent only my lab, but a lot of labs as well as the NPOD consortium um, and UFDI. So I just want everyone to keep that in mind. This is sort of a team science that I'm talking about here. Yeah, team science seems to uh, really move things faster. So uh, just uh, amazing that you're part of that. Uh, you know, to move things uh, that, of this complexity, I think it's it's the only way. Agreed. Um, so you gave me a very nice introduction, so I don't need to introduce myself or, you know, my lab works on various things, um, both translational and fundamental science. And uh, Today, I think we're going to talk about sort of more on the fundamental side a little bit in terms of the immunopathology of type 1 diabetes, particularly in the human case. So probably most folks in the field are familiar with these type of histology images, but if you're not, this is a cross-section of a human pancreas uh, from the NPOD data archives. Um, if you're not familiar with NPOD, it's a, a really amazing consortium of scientists and um, tissue resource that's uh, partially run out of University of Florida. And uh, the idea is to collect uh, donor organs from individuals with different stages of diabetes um, with an emphasis on type one. And we can study the uh, disease in the, these um, very unique human samples, basically. 
right? And so a lot of that traditionally has been done on fixed tissue specimens, and we've really been able to transform our understanding of how type 1 diabetes works in humans and what are some of the causes and um, what are some of the you know, most important correlated factors. Um, but sort of the thing to keep in mind is with tissue section that's fixed, you get just a single moment in time and none of this is live. So you can't see any of the dynamics of the tissue. But some of the main characteristics that we observe are uh, T cells here stained in brown for CD3 that are um, eye recognizing and attacking these pancreatic islets that are showing insulin and glucagon and magenta and blue. So the idea with pancreas slice technology, and, and by the way, this was not, you know, developed originally by me by any means. So folks like Marion Rupnik and Stefan Speyer originally developed these protocols and continued to work in this space. So there's quite a number of groups now working on slices. Is that instead of a fixed uh, piece of tissue in paraffin or frozen, it's a live piece of tissue. And um, this is kind of what slices look like. So it's uh, I'll show you how we make them on the next slide. But the idea is they're smallish, about five millimeters on a side, pieces of human pancreas. You can also make them from mouse. And about 100 microns in thickness. And uh, it comes from the, you know, the living uh, donated organ before it's being processed for histology. So we take small pieces of that tissue cut it on a vibratome, which keeps the, you know, in a way that keeps the tissue viable. So this is not fixed. It's not, it's not static tissue. It's live tissue. And we can actually very easily pick out and see where the beta cells are, where the islets are in this pancreas tissue. So this has sort of got this opaque look and uh, this is all acinar tissue. You can see some ductal network and maybe some blood vessels in there. If you look closely, and then you can also pick out many islands. So they have a sort of different opacity, a little bit more translucent here. And there's there's more. So, so this 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 technology was originally created in the neuro um, world. Right, right. Right. Yeah, this is very much analogous to brain slice, which mm -hmm. neuroscience has used for decades and decades. And, and other fields, you know, people make uh, liver slice or kidney slice and so forth. One of the unique challenges with pancreas tissue slice is that the uh, uh, exocrine pancreas makes digestive enzymes. Mm -hmm. So there's a tendency for the slice to want to digest itself in culture, which we have to deal with. Okay, so here's uh, kind of how they're made. Uh, should have maybe gave the disclaimer, I was gonna show a organ picture, but here we have a human pancreas and, and these are images provided by NPOD. Uh, so the team of really amazing NPOD technicians and, and folks working with organ procurement organizations um, help to identify these uh, tissues from organ donors and bring them in for our research. And they prepare the slices as a team for several groups that then do that science on the generated slices. So I'm not making the slices myself. They're, they're being made upstairs with NPOD and, and the group that Mark Atkinson is leading. So they're embedded. It, smaller pieces of tissue are cut from the a larger organ from maybe head, body, and tail region, and they're embedded in agros. And then we put them on a device called a vibratome, which has got a very sharp razor blade here that vibrates back and forth at a very fast frequency. And then it advances very slowly while it's vibrating. It doesn't work like a microtome where you can just like turn the crank and just crank out slices really fast. It takes 
you know, 10 minutes or more to, to for this to move all the way across this specimen. So it, it's very slow. It actually takes a long time to make slices. Right, so once we have the slices, what do we do with them? Um, one of the first things we do is we check for the tissue, how the tissue looks. So here's a different one here where you can see this one has more fat in it, right? More adipose, uh, different look to this particular slice, but we can still see islets there. If we throw them under the confocal, we can actually identify islets very easily based on reflectance because of the insulin um, uh, secretory granules scatter the light. So if we shine uh, laser light through the microscope on the slice, and this is without any fluorescence, you just see that light being scat back scattered back because of the granularity of the islet. And we can do viability here. Where there's always some dead cells, uh, particularly if associated with blood vessels. You can see a lot of these blue guys probably endothelial cells because the blood flow is no longer happening. Uh, but 90 plus percent of the tissue is still very much alive. Are these, um, are these um, tissues, you know, somehow specially oxygenated in transit between the harvest and the, um, you know, right. culture? Good question. That's something that folks will do for uh, particularly for brain slice in neuroscience. Uh, we have found that's not necessary with pancreas slice, that the atmospheric oxygen, which is like, what, 29% uh, in room air is sufficient to oxygenate them. So, I mean, there are some folks experimenting with that, but we haven't had to supersaturate our media with oxygen to maintain viability. Right. Interesting. So we can then uh, uh, go in and specifically stain for beta cells. So in addition to the reflectance mode that I mentioned, uh, we can use beta cell surface markers using like flow cytometry antibodies that have a fluorophore. So you can't permeabilize, right? But you can stain for surface markers. So some of the ones that have worked for us are NTPDase-3 uh, or also known as ANTPD-3. This was described in a paper in cell metabolism by a, the Vanderbilt group. Al Powers and Co. a few years back now is a beta cell specific surface marker. Uh, there's also some delta cells which have this marker. Um, another one which we have used is the GLP-1 receptor fluorescent antagonist uh, called Luxendin. It's now a commercial reagent which you can buy. So if anyone wants details on those, which antibodies to use, I'll be happy to share them with you. Just send me an email, but these are all published. Um, next, one of the things that we can do is we can look at activity in the slice. So this is a short video using a calcium indicator called Calbright 520. So this is a fluorescent dye that we load into the cells and then the brightness corresponds with calcium. And of course, calcium is a second messenger for insulin secretion. Right? So it's, we can basically look at the activity in beta cells as well as all of the other part of the islet using uh, calcium indicators. And we can do a protocol where we'll do things like stimulate with from low to high glucose and potassium chloride to depolarize. So let me just see if I can show this video. That's great. Yeah. So you can see it actually sort of oscillating and you'll see when we add the glucose here, it's turning on brighter and brighter. So you can really watch the activity. Here. Some of the other things that we've been able to do with these slices is um, express different transgenes in the human tissue, which is pretty unique. So basically take whatever your favorite adenovirus or AAV might be and uh, package in a gene of interest and uh, culture the slices with the virus and then 
one or two days later, you get expression of the transgene. So for example, this is just a proof of concept with GCAMP, which is another type of calcium indicator, this one genetically encoded. This one has a CMV promoter using regular adenovirus. We can express GCAMP in more or less every cell in the slice. We get, I would estimate, 90% plus uh, transduction efficiency with our methods. So here we see that dash outline of where the islet is. In this experiment, again, we'll stimulate here with glucose. And here you can see kind of different view than from the calcium indicator dyes. Right? You know, it's coming online with the glucose. And if you watch this video a few times, there's all kind of neat little things happening in the background. You see little macrophages running around, little uh, maybe primary cilia doing something here. One of the things we also do in this video is we add carbacol at the end, which is uh, a cholinergic receptor agonist, which is stimulating the exocrine portion of the slice. So we can look at activity, not only in the islet area, but in the acinar cells as well. These heat maps are just a way of looking at the data. So we can draw what we call an ROI, which would just be a region of interest around individual cells, and then um, plot the activity in that particular cell. So each line in this heat map indicates the activity in one cell. So we can get an idea, uh, a visual idea of the video in, in a static two-dimensional image. How long are uh, you getting these slices to last, sort of the range of life? So for us, we use them pretty acutely. Um, and that's, what, that's by intention. We, you know, we, we don't have a lot of reasons yet to keep them for a very long time. Mm. But we find we get pretty good uh, preservation of activity for three or four days. Um, we can keep them a bit longer than that as well, but they, they kind of start to change after that as well. Other groups have shown that they can keep them alive for two weeks or more using special oxygenating substrates. And things like that. So th there are some methods to keep them longer if that's um, useful for you. We can also target transgene expression to beta cells specifically. So here is using an adenovirus for um, reactive oxygen, a biosensor called GRX1 rho GFP. So this gives an idea of the redox potential in the cell. And we put this under insulin promoter. So we can express this probe um, specifically in islets and not in the rest of the tissue, which is what we're seeing here. Um, some islets we get, you know, I would say 50, 60% transfection. This one a little bit less. All right. So, uh, and I mean, we have, I have short time, so I'm going to kind of give an overview of some different areas. And if anyone's interested in any particular topic, I can talk more about it. I'll uh, talk a little bit about now looking at immune cells and slices. So first we'll look at some mice data and then I'll show you human. So these are islets from a Nod RAG1 knockout mouse on the left. This is a, you can see a very nice big plump islet and no green CD3 positive T cells. So we're actually staining the T cells with an antibody for CD3 that has a fluorophore attached to it. So it's not like a transgenic mouse with GFP. We're just at an antibody labeled T cells. So there's no T cells here because this mouse doesn't make T cells. It's a um, genetically modified mouse with the T cells. And then this is a variant of that mouse where all of the T cells have the same recombinant T cell receptor that's uh, specific for insulin. So the whole immune system in this mouse reacts against beta cells. And here you can see many T cells in this islet and islets basically become pseudoatropic. It's very small, very few beta cells left. So this mouse progresses rapidly to type one diabetes. So we're able to take a snapshot of the islet during uh, active insulitis is the idea in the slice. So here's a video of that. 
here we have a mouse islet, same strain of mouse. This time the T cells are stained for CE8 and magenta, and we have calcium as well, uh, calcium indicator difluorophore, and cytox blue, which is a cell death indicator. And one of the things that you can actually see in this video that I'm about to be playing is the T cells will turn uh, green and flash calcium in the moment in which they are engaging in the immune synapse. So the moment they're targeting a beta cell and killing that beta cell by uh, secreting granzyme B and perforin. You can, you can see the rejection process happening. So here's one turning green here. I think there'll probably be another one over here popping this one. You can see quite a few coming on and off over the course of this sort of short video. And you can see some of them crawling around as well in here, but they're kind of also really glommed onto this focal encephalitis region of this island. Yeah, that's really interesting. Are you, find, are you seeing any particular sort of um, clumps of beta cells preferentially attacked? I mean, this whole idea of like the pacemaker. Oh, um, right. Right, beta uh, cell region that could be, once that's offline, then the others could be, you know, not very well coordinated. So when you say pacemaker, I'm sorry, you, you, when you say pacemaker, do you mean like uh, cardiac cells where they start in sync? I, I'm confused in what you're asking there. Oh, what? no, not like um, the SA or AV nodes, but more like this, like Richard Benninger's paper talking about whether or not there is a true pacemaker beta cell that sets the insulin secretion tone. Yeah. So it's like also maybe some of Guy Rutter's work with yeah. leader cells and follower cells and so forth. So the idea being that there are certain beta cells which uh, are, are triggering the rest of the islet that are more maybe more sensitive or have a lower glucose threshold, for instance, or, or have a different um, metabolic rate or any number of reasons. They, activate first and then through gap junctions or other mechanisms, they activate their neighbors. And if you take out those particular cells, does that cause the whole islet to lose uh, synchronicity and glucose responsiveness or become less functional? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know because we don't have a good way to identify those particular cells. There's not like a, without, you know, doing a calcium and imaging analysis, but we have some data I'll show you in a little bit, a couple more slides that kind of get to that topic, that question in terms of islet function. Um, let's see, okay, so back to the Nodrag AI4 mice, uh, same islet here. Uh, one of the other things that we can do is we can add uh, tetramers. So these are reagents that are uh, a peptide MHC complex uh, bound to a streptavidin and, or maybe with a polymer that makes uh, a group. And so it's a multivalent. And that allows you to look at the specificity of the T cell receptor on the, on the CD8 positive T cells here and determine whether these cells are specific for a particular peptide antigen. So in this case, we know the peptide antigen that most of the T cells in these mice will respond to um, derived from insulin. So we have it, we can stay with that tetramer and we can see, yes, many of these T cells in this islet are re reactive towards insulin, which is pretty cool. We can also then do that same technology in human. It's a little bit trickier just because in human, you have a very polyclonal response. So you may have many T cells, but uh, they can react to all kinds of different things. But we have managed to identify in different human slices, some T cells that are responding to the islet antigen called IGRP and other ones that are responsive, CD4 T cells that are responsive to GAD. Um, although it's tricky to do this analysis 
quantitatively. So these are more qualitative observations at this point. Okay, so next, uh, this image is now a couple years old, but I'll show you some newer ones. We started to apply this idea to human slices and ask whether we could take movies of insulitis in human type 1 diabetes. So this is the first movie we took of that from a donor uh, age 27 years old and short duration of diabetes, one and a half years. So this video, you can see two islets here and several CD3 positive T cells sort of creating the beginnings of a focal insulitis here in between these two islets and a couple of the cells moving. Mm. So when we saw this, we realized it's possible now that we can take live videos of insulitis from uh, human samples. Fantastic. Um, here's another donor, just to give you another idea with a little bit different frame rate where we can see these magenta CD3 positive G cells crawling around on this yellow islet here. This one hasn't quite progressed to the stage of what we would really identify as, as insulitis yet, but we can really see this motion of the immune cells in the tissue. Um, and keep in mind, you know, this is all live, live tissue. So of course, the images won't be quite as spectacular as you can get with fixed, fixed tissue, but mm -hmm. we're getting better and better. So one of the other things, this is not my data, but I'm a co-author on this paper uh, with uh, Julia Panzer is the first author and uh, Stefan Spire, last author in JCI Insight. Well, we can also do from the same slice that we image dynamic hormone secretion. So we can also stimulate with high glucose and KCL and measure how much insulin this slice is able to secrete. And we can look at secretion of hormones from uh, slice donors without diabetes or different durations of type 1 diabetes. And we can see the dramatic decline in ability to secrete insulin in response to glucose in these donors. So kind of workflow that we can do now overall with slices is we take a organ donor and pod makes the slices and distributes those to the slice working group of investigators. And then uh, pod also does some things like hormone secretion, 3D morphometry imaging of fixed slices, and then various groups, including us, do live imaging and also histopathology slices. Following that workflow now, we've been able to do a workup on several donors from different types of categories, like no diabetes, autoantibody positive, or short duration type one and look at islets at varying stages of destruction. So you can kind of see a progression here of fewer and fewer beta cells that are marked by ENTPD3 in yellow and more and more T cells. Uh, also within the same donor, because you might say, well, this, how do you compare from one donor to the next? There's so much variability. We can actually look at islets from different regions of the pancreas in, in a single donor. So this is a NPOD donor 6551 with a T1D duration of seven months, 20 years old donor. Uh, and you can find islets that are so as yet more or less untouched and very viable and islets that look like this, where you have only a few beta cells left and uh, dozens, if not a hundred or more CD3 positive T cells attacking this side. So this is, you can compare function in this islet and this islet from the same donor, for instance. And this would remove some of the question mark about uh, what happened to the tissue during organ isolation and the, the, you know, the donors uh, characteristics and so forth that might change things. So here's a video of the ins human insulitis from that donor from one of those islets here. Here's the yellow islet and then these are all immune cells attacking this islet. Now you can see there's quite a lot of movement here. And the duration of this video is about 30 minutes. And I just emphasize there's nothing else like this in type 1 diabetes in the world. I mean, this is yeah. truly, truly novel. 
representation data. So when we did the work up on the zonar, we actually didn't know, know we were going to see this. So we Amazing. just got the tissue on the microscope and we were like, oh my gosh, we need to record it. And um, we actually already now, if we do get another donor of the, the similar, what I say, a similar stage of uh, T1D that we can do much longer term recording. So rather than 30 minutes or one hour, we can record for uh, say 12 hours or, or even 24 hours. As you amass these data, you're gonna be able to really almost, you know, be able to, I mean, maybe even use like ML or, I mean, something of that nature to kind of gain further insight. What are your thoughts about that? I'm not familiar with ML. Machine learning or oh, okay. something like sure. that. Yeah. I mean, because these are images, right? So they can yeah. learn from imagery. It, yeah. This is amazing. This is really, really exciting data. So here's another islet from that same donor. Just another view. You can see, again, this is another 30-minute reporting or so. Look at this region right here where my mouse is. Yeah. These beta cells are getting actively attacked. But, you know, one of the other things that we could take away from this is this is actually a pretty sluggish immune response, right? I mean, if these were xenogenic cells in there, they would be, like, killed. These T cells would be swarming and eliminating their targets really, really fast. So it kind of suggests that the process of beta cell rejection, at least in human, takes a while and that it's not super efficient. Hmm. Uh, that was one of the things that struck us when we look at these data that we were like, wow, this is actually not a really great immune response uh, that that's happening here. So we want to investigate that question more, like how fast does do the beta cells actually get killed by the immune cells? Or do the immune cells just kind of go to the islet and hang out there and the beta cells sort of succumb from the inflammation, but not necessarily direct beta cell killing, for instance. We don't know the answer to those questions, but we think we might be able to start answering those in the human context with this model. Yeah, well, it fits with this sort of like slower progression in some individuals, right? Especially right. sort of elongated prodrome and this whole idea of like coming in and out of sort of remission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So one of the questions we were trying to answer now is we actually combine calcium imaging with the immune cell data to ask functional, uh, how, how well do the islets function mm -hmm. when they have one of these severe insulinic lesions? So I can tell you, again, one of those islets that we just watched a video from had basically no glucose response, despite the fact that there's still quite a few viable, there's quite a few dead beta cells, but also quite a few viable beta cells remaining here. Um, those cells, even though they're alive, don't respond to glucose in, in any meaningful way. So are you thinking like senescence or just something else? We're, I can't answer that yet. We don't know. Yeah. Senescence is something that can be looked at. Uh, that's more of a longer term thing, right? But it could also just be the severe inflammatory environment uh, from cytokines and what have you that cause the islet to stop um, making ATP in response to glucose. And yeah. Well, so. Peter Thompson and Neil Bouchon and others are kind of investigating the senescent side of things, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great and really cool hypothesis as well. I think senescence really comes into play as well once you have islets that survive the autoimmune attack and the T cells go away and beta cells remain for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. So you can look at someone that has had type one diabetes for a decade or more and they still may have some beta cells, but those beta cells are no longer actively being sought out and attacked, right? And but they don't function either. So that's clearly a senescence phenotype. Here, I think maybe it's earlier we're interested in what's happening before that, but um, 
it could progress to senescence, for example, for sure. Mm. So uh, from this donor, we look at, and it, it's not necessarily just the presence of T cells. So here we have two islets and a bunch of a similar degree of CD3 positive infiltrates. Uh, islet number one on the left has a very good glucose response. Islet number two on the right has a very poor glucose response. They have similar viability, similar level infiltration. So we need to dig deeper to figure out what results in this islet being non-functioning, this islet functioning more or less okay. Okay, and so I, I, we're almost out of time. Uh, basically that's leading to our investigatory hypothesis that student um, that's shared between me and Clay Matthews and Mark Atkins named Molly Huber is doing where she's looking at whether immune dysregulation during early stages of T1D impacts the beta cell dysfunction, uh, particularly looking down pathways of glucose metabolism. So I think with that, for the sake of time, uh, I'll just jump here to the end slide and uh, thank the funding sources so far on this project. I really would like to point out Molly Huber for doing most of the work on the SLICE project. And certainly collaborators like Denise Drotar, who's now a postdoc with Mark Atkinson, the NPOD organ donors and their families. So of course, very important to acknowledge and the NPOD SLICE team, including Irina, Helmut Hiller, Maria Berry, and all the folks that make the slices for us. Thank you. Great, thank you very much. Can we, um, does anyone in the audience have a question? Fred here, there's, there's a lot to process here. It's amazing what you've been able to accomplish. So uh, my, uh, yeah, I agree. It's a lot to uh, uh, assimilate and Ed, you're clearly a leader here in the field. So congratulations. Where do you see this technology three to five years from now? I mean, where, where's it going to go? Not just, you know, in the next six months as you knock off grants or whatever, but where are you going to push the limits to make it go three to five years from now? What's going to wow us then? Right. Okay. So I think the, the real power of the slice is, it, is it's the closest thing we can get at this point to really looking at the dynamics of type one diabetes in the human situation. I mean, you know, of course we can do lots of experiments with mice, uh, but mice are not little humans. Even if we make humanized mice, there's still major differences. So um, because we can't look at what's happening with progression of type one diabetes in living humans, the next best thing is, is a slice model. But the problem with that is um, certainly we want uh, people with type one diabetes to, to keep on kicking and not become organ donors. So there's just very few cases available to us uh, to study. And uh, those cases are always all over the board in terms of at what time point in progression of type 1 diabetes we're going to be looking at. Like we may go years before we get another case again, like the one I just showed you. And that one is probably going to be different. So how can we go about doing more um, controlled, rigorous science with the slices so we can really test hypotheses and answer questions, uh, and even also test interventions in the human context. And what that requires us uh, to do is uh, do something where we might engineer a situation of insulitis. So we have many more donors available to us that don't have type 1 diabetes that are more or less normal or control. And the idea is, can we take engineered T cells, add them to a non-diabetic organ donor slice, and recreate a situation that's similar to type one diabetes. So we more or less take a slice, sprinkle engineered T cells on top that are gonna kill 
react and kill beta cells and then see if we can find the right uh, culture conditions to generate what we call investigator-induced insulitis. And that's kind of what we're working on now. So this is a video of that, or a short one, where we have all these green T cells running around in a slice. And these are not endogenous T cells. These are T cells that we put there. And you can see an islet here, and we can see several of them have found that islet and are starting to interact with it. Um, but we're not quite there yet. We're trying to make this better and more specific and find the conditions to really create a sort of swarming effect where all of these will recognize and move to that islet and eventually kill it. If we can do that, then we have a much more repeatable, robust human model where we could then try adding uh, you know, various therapeutic ideas that we could intervene and prevent that progression or bring the beta cells back to functioning normally. So that's kind of where I would see it going in my hands. But of course, there's a lot of other groups doing really exciting stuff too that's different, looking at the physiology, differences in, in exocrine function, differences in vascular function and so forth in diabetes versus control. Just Sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but thank you. No, it's a great answer. Just to qualify, you're gonna, you would hope to get these slices from HLA um, you know, designated individuals, right? So you're going to yeah. capture that too. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that seems, you know, phenomenal. It's really, oh. really exciting. Are you looking for postdocs? Oh yeah. You saw my slide. Yeah. I think <laughs> you know, we'd love to hire a postdoc to do that project that I just described to you actually. To take, yeah. that, take that on and move that to the next level. That's in a very exciting project for a postdoc um, or graduate student really to participate in. And um, yeah, I hope you get some shouts out. I'm sure that people, we have a, a very large uh, audience that listens and watches these presentations. So hopefully uh, you'll get some feedback and we're getting a lot of um, very nice, uh, you know, accolades to you in the chat. So congratulations. Um, yeah, and this, in the interest of time, anyone else, is anyone else like to make a, uh, or have a question for Ed? Well, I just want to congratulate you on a really nice talk and beautiful data. Um, I'm very, very interested in the clustering that you showed with the transgenic T cells, where you saw that in one islet, there were a lot of T cells in the islet. And then in another islet, it was very sparse, which is yeah. kind of interesting, right? Because the T cells, if they're all have the same specificity, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be localized like that. Do you think it's because there are other cell types that are in the infiltrate in the one islet and not the other? And it's sort of different ages of the yeah. pathologic process or what do you think is going on? So this is one of the really interesting characteristics of human type one diabetes that NPOD has revealed. And that's that the insulitis is localized and lobular. So it's not uniform around the pancreas. And you kind of have one region of the pancreas where islets are attacked and the other region is fine. And then it moves around and goes over here and then goes over here. So um, it's sort of, you have a maybe there's a hypothesis called sterile inflammation, which can happen for whatever reason, which then calls in and attracts lymphocytes to the region. Say, so, you know, investigate what's going on here, but that this part is inflamed and this part is not. So that's why there are T-cells there. So we're looking at slices from different regions of the pancreas, and that's probably what that reflects. Um, in terms of, you know, infiltrate composition or, or whatnot, it's very hard to do in the live slice because we just have only so many colors. And uh, I mean, I can tell you that both islets have beta cells in them. It's not like that was only alpha cells or something. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you, do you yeah. see any innervation differences between those that are attacked first or not? A uh, good question. We do not look at that, but there are other groups that do. 
see Ali Chan the call out some of the Miami colleagues look at this. Yep. And, and other groups as well. Well, as these data sets, you know, begin to layer upon layer, I'm, I'm sure some of this will be revealed, but this is an amazing, um, an amazing approach. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for hope, the invitation. Yeah. And hope you guys uh, continue to sort of uh, recover from the rain and, and uh, oh. hurricane down there. <laughs> Gainesville was very much spared. We had just more or less a cloudy day, um, but the rest of the state, it was horrific. So, you know, yeah, it was bad. Well, I'm very happy to hear that you Florida Diabetes Center is spared because you're doing a lot of excellent work there. Okay, well, we'll talk again. Um, hope you have a great rest of the day and thanks for all you do. Thank you.